This is the last week for the Lazy DM's Forge of Foes Kickstarter. We're going to show off a couple more chapters from the book and talk about the end of the Kickstarter. Scott, Teos, and I were on the D&D Beyond Twitch channel to talk about Forge of Foes. We'll give you a link to that. There is also an N-World interview with Scott Teos and I talking all about Forge of Foes. I'm going to talk about the resilience and the anti-fragility of tabletop RPGs and how we can make it even stronger in a digital age. What do I think we want from Wizards of the Coast in this hobby? And we're going to dive into the March 2023 Patreon questions from the Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can find a link down in the show notes to become a patron. Patrons get access to all things like a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, and the monthly Q&A. You can be either a veteran or a hero-tiered subscriber. All of that is down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So yeah, we are in the, this is the, the official last week of the Forge of Foes Kickstarter. The Kickstarter is doing very well. You can, of course, find a link to join the Kickstarter if you haven't already down in the show notes below. You can also find the 30-page preview of Forge of Foes in, in, on that Kickstarter page. We're really happy with how things have been going. We've been getting a lot of press. Actually, right before the show, I found out that Matt Colville backed it and also tweeted about himself backing it. So that was very cool. We've had a lot of really good attention and it's been, it's been a very exciting week. And so we're, we're, we're really eager to, you know, really eager to, to work on this book and get it in your hands. Scott and Teos and I are working really hard on it. We get together every week and talk about things. It's really been both very fun to do and very hard. And I thought I would show off a couple more more of the chapters that we're working on some of the kind of fun stuff that isn't in the preview that you might want to that you might want to see and one of the examples is a monsters by adventure location i might actually change this from monsters by adventure location but like monstrous encounters by adventure location i'm going to talk to scott and teos about that and see what we think the idea here is many monster books in the back have a monsters by environment and usually it's like monsters and environments then a list of monsters and their challenge ratings and that's cool and we like that but we're like okay well we want to kind of do our own take on this that isn't replicating what they do because those are really good and very useful but what's another angle we could take and so we we found two other angles one is doing it by adventure location rather than by environment and instead of just having a list of monsters actually talking about a tiny little encounter almost like a random encounter table sort of thing that are based on each of the tiers of play. And we, we treat level one as its own tier of play. So we have like ancient ruins. We have a, a thug leading bandits to rob a caravan. The underlined one is the boss. So you have a boss and minions. And so that way you're getting like a multivariate view of this. You have by location, by adventure location, by tier and boss and minion connections and tiny little encounters built in. A ancient ruins, a pair of bugbears using goblins as bait to seek ad adventurous prey. And you can tell we built it out more than just the list of monsters. It's actually a tiny little encounter. It talks about motivation. It talks about the connection. If you look at the city sewers, level one, a zombie feasting upon a swarm of rats. At level two to four, we have an erudite ghast weaving fantastic tales to ravenous ghoul followers. I think that one's fun. 
a spy guarded by unscrupulous bandits awaiting a contract, an Atiug in a pit surrounded by gray oozes beneath a waterline, and were rats feeding prisoners to their giant rat pets. So those are some fun sewers. You can also tell that we we decided that there are certain locations where like you're not likely to find a challenge rating 17 encounter down in the city sewer. So we didn't bother to break it out to all tiers for every location. Some of them start at higher levels. For example, the volcano lair. You're not going to go to the volcano lair at level 3. You're probably going to go there at least at level five and a fire giant with pet hellhounds commands azir to to dig a trapped afridi uses fire elementals to fight for freedom you know 17 to 20th an ancient red dragon worshipped by fire giants awakens from slumber so you know different levels different tiers we do have like a hellish and citadel starting as low as level two but the whole idea is having these little encounters there's not as many of them Right, you're not getting piles and piles of every single monster, but you're getting like a handful of encounters per level, per environment. And those environments, again, are not the kind of the same environments that you would find in any of your other monster books. We have ancient ruins, city sewers, crypts, catacombs, and necropolis, city, seedy city streets, seedy city streets, wizard's tower, volcano lair, abyssal keep, hellish citadel, frozen fortress, deep cavern, sunken grotto, and dark forest and fetid swamps. So those that, you know, really fun, like again, a really usable, just a couple of pages in the book that give you good ideas for building encounters and gives you the seed of the encounter to go. Really excited about that. Another one is goes right back to some of the work that I did on the lazy on lazy DM tips, my first book that I wrote. And this one I was less in the lazy view. I was I was more about building really big rich encounters cuz fourth edition of D&D almost every encounter was like a really big rich encounter. And I said, you know, instead of just kind of building it more the lazy style, which is like try to get your, you know, really cut down to the bare things that you need in order to run a fun encounter. Let's go back to that list and let's look at all the things you might be able to do in an encounter. What are all the different variables that you could take? And this art, this, this, this chapter of the book does that. So that checklist, very simple checklist is interesting monsters, a fantastic location, zone wide effects, traps and hazards, advantageous positions, interactable objects, cover, difficult or fantastic terrain and a goal. Now, you don't have to use all of these in every encounter, but the idea is like, if you're trying to think about spicing up and enriching an encounter, you might go down this list and say, hmm, what are some zone-wide effects I could do? Or is there a goal that isn't just kill all the monsters? Or are there interesting bits for cover? You know, things like that. And then we go into descriptions for each of these. And in some cases, we offer up like 10 examples of like, what are some zone-wide effects? The, the God of Blood infuses all melee attacks with extra die of damage. Or a thick fog makes it impossible to see creatures more than 30 feet away. And it talks about like areas where that might be a problem like areas where that might make it less fun in interactable objects we have a whole list ballast that one can use to fire upon their foes catapults that can hurl allies far across the chamber really kind of fun interactable objects difficult and fantastic terrain what are some ways you can change the not for the whole zone but for parts of the zone and then what are some goals destroy powerful monuments recover a prisoner kill the boss but don't worry about her minions close the gateway and prevent the big bads escape so lots of different ways so so this is getting into that like we're not just making a book of lazy tips we have books of lazy tips. We have three really great books of lazy tips. This is also expanding the whole topic of monsters and thinking about different ways to do them that we might not often think about when we do want to go beyond just the bare minimum we need to run our game and really want to make things bigger and rich. This is a good example where we where we do that. The final one I want to talk about because it's, it's really a fun one are dice rolling options. This is almost right out of kind of Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. I don't think that, that parts of this are in Uncovered. I don't, I don't think any of this little of the one part of it is an uncovered secrets volume two but all this is original material and it talks about like when do you want to roll dice when do you not want to roll dice if you're using if you if you have damage 
that's dice-based, but you want to make it static to save yourself a little time, how can you convert di dice-based damage to static damage? That This table, I think, is really useful for that. I've never seen a table like this, and I really think that it's handy. And the idea here is if you have a fireball, and the fireball says it's 8d6, you go number of dice is, is 8, so you go to row 8, and it's d6s, so you go to the d6 column, and it says 28. 28 is the average of 8d6. If you have 10d8, you go to the 10 and you go to the D8s and you see that it is 45. Kona Cold, I think, is six is 8D8, I think, right, for Kona Cold. So you go to 8, you go to 8, and it says 36. And the neat thing is, even though it only goes to 12, you can actually just keep adding. So if it's if you have 20, and you let's say you have 20D10, 24D10, we'll do like a big dragon fire breath. It's 24D10. And for some reason, it doesn't have the average it would probably would, but let's go to 24 D10. You go to the 12 D10, 66, and you say, okay, well, it's 66 times two, right? Which is, is that 100? No, it's 64 would be 128. So 66 is 132, 132 points of damage, right? So right with this one table, you can figure out many, many big piles of dice rolls. And it talks a lot about like, well, what do you do when you handle critical hits? We actually, you know, the, the core book handles that too. This is a really trick that I like, which is instead of saying it's either one or the other, that you, you either use static damage or you use all the dice, that instead you can use static damage, subtract three and add a D6. And the nice thing there is it takes something like, let's say a, a, a creature does 14 points of damage. Instead of having to roll all the dice equations to do 14 points up to 14 or the, just using the average every time, you could say it's 11 plus 1d6 or 1d6 plus 11. You roll the d6, you add 11, and that's the number you get. And that adds a little bit of variance onto it, not a tremendous amount of variance. And it's really easy and fast to do. It's really easy and fast to add to do, to do the math in your head. So if you want to add a little bit of variance to static damage, that offers that offers how do you handle critical hits and then this is a really this is the fun one i've talked about this on this show before it's actually this is in uncovered secrets volume two i don't even know if this is going to make it into the book we'll see and if you if you if you look at this and you're like oh this is really cool i totally want this in the please add a comment and if you look at it and say mike i don't know what the hell you're talking about don't waste a page in the book on this let me know that too so you can, you can, you can, you can affect this. You can affect this. Do we want, do we want to have in this? We are discussing it among ourselves. Is this something we want to have in the book or not? I've talked about this as well. The idea is what if you have to roll a whole ton of rolls, but you really only want to roll a D20 once. You don't want to roll 15 or, or 10, 10, you know, 5, 10 or 20 rolls. And what you have is this table that tells you based on the target number you're trying to hit, you roll a single D20 that represents a whole bunch of rolls. So in this case, we'll go to the tens and we'll say 10 skeletons are attacking a paladin. The paladin has an AC of 20. The skeletons have plus four to hit. So they have to roll a 16 or, right? Yeah, they have to roll a 16 or better. So they're way up in this column here. And then you see how many successes they have. I'm going to roll my big dumb D20. This is stupid, but you know, it'll work. And you roll. So, so we have 16 and we roll once. I rolled an 11 and you go down the table to 11 and 11 is three, which means three of the 10 skeletons that attacked the, the, attacked the paladin hit. So it's a weird way of using this table, but it means you can roll a whole bunch of attack rolls. Let's say 20 skeletons are attacking the paladin. So again, well, we know that the paladin has an AC of 20. We know that the, therefore the target number that they have to hit is 16. And let's say 40, 40 skeletons are attacking the paladin, right? We're going to roll twice. Roll once and we rolled a, was that a one? That's a one. So only two of the first group of skeletons hit. And then we roll again and we rolled a 15 and a 15 says six. So eight of the 40 skeletons that attacked 
the paladin actually hit. They do five damage a piece. That's 40 damage done to the paladin. So the paladin's fighting 40 skeletons and he takes 40 points. Right? Really quick, really easy way to handle whole big piles of rolls in it. So I think this table is really cool. But it also is kind of complicated, so we'll see. We'll see if it's going. So that is the dice rolling options. So those are three chapters that we're going to have in Forge of Foes. Those are drafts. What you just saw are draft chapters. They are the second. I've, I've done one revision of these, and then Scott and Taos, we get comments back, and we think about it, and then it goes in editing, and then it goes into layout. So those are early drafts, but we're very excited about that. So if you want more of that, if you like what you just saw and you want it, back the Forge of Foes Kickstarter. You can find a link down in the show notes below. We were really, really lucky. This is interesting. And this gets into Wizards of the Coast. This is where I have a conflict of interest. Are you prepared for my conflict of interest? Because this benefited myself and my friends, Scott and Teos, tremendously. And also gets into the conversation of what Wizards of the Coast can do for third-party publishers. We were invited to join to join the folks at the D&D Beyond Discord, or at the D&D Beyond Twitch channel. And we had a show that we did where we talked about Forge of Foes for an hour with the folks from D&D Beyond. And this is on this is Wizards of the Coast's channel. They they own this and they invite us on there to talk about Forge of Foes for an hour. Now, these videos, I think they only last a month. So, if you want to watch this, now is the time. Go the, the link is down in the show notes below and you can watch the hour-long interview with Scott and Teos and myself all talking about Forge of Foes, where it came from, what we've been building, really 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 fun stuff. And at the same time, kind of talk shows about how Wizards of the Coast is reaching out to third-party publishers to be a better member of the community. We're going to talk about this in a bit. We're going to dive deeper into this. It was a really, really fun interview to do. I was very happy and grateful for them to invite us on. I think we're the first group that they brought on like this. And we were just really, really happy to be able to do it. It was a really fun conversation. And it did result in getting a lot of backers to come and back Forge of Foes that probably would not have heard about it otherwise. So if you want to see that interview, really fun to do. You can find a link to it down in the show notes below. Thanks to the folks from D&D Beyond for having us on. That was really, really a good time. Likewise, also a, a big benefit is that N-World had done an interview with us. You can find it was on the front page of N-World, also a really big deal, where Egg Embry from N-World interviewed through email, myself, and Scott and Teos, and we all talk about the book. So if you're into text and you want to learn more, you can see a long interview. And again, really big benefit. N-World does not typically do like a full article about anybody's Kickstarter, much less an interview like this. So we were really lucky to have this opportunity to do it. And you, most of the time, they kind of have a, like, let's talk about all the Kickstarters that are going, because there's always so many. But this one, they did a full interview just for us. And we couldn't, couldn't be more grateful. That was also a nice big, nice big boon for the Kickstarter. And of course, you can find a link to that down in the show notes below. Very exciting, very exciting stuff. So this past week, so I, I've been thinking about this for a while. And this is a topic we have talked about on this show for a while. If this topic bores you, if you're not really that interested, that is why we have bookmarks both in the podcast and the YouTube show. So you can skip to just the parts of the show that you actually want to hear about. But I am fascinated by the resiliency, the resilience of RPGs as a hobby that I, I you know, I've said it before that this is the only hobby I, I guess writing is kind of a hobby. It's one of the few hobbies we have that can survive a nuclear war. If electronics stopped working, if there was a solar flare that burned out all of the electronics in the world, we could still play D&D. We could still play RPGs, tabletop RPGs. As long as we have physical books and dice and character sheets and pencils and friends and family members to play with us, unless you're playing Iron Sworn, in which case you can play by yourself in your cave eating rats, then 
that's that that is really powerful like i play destiny 2 that wouldn't be around destiny 2 will not survive the end of bungie it won't survive there's lots of things it wouldn't survive and anytime you have you know what i think about like everquest and world of warcraft and other massive online games and there haven't been that many that have like just failed completely but you're sort of at the whim of the company on what they decide they're going to do with it and i see it a lot when i play destiny where they'll change something in destiny or they don't like the way a weapon works in destiny or some class has been forgotten about and nobody everybody wants to go back and play that class and you're really just at the whims of the company that's running it to decide they listen to the community and they try to make they try to make changes and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not like the new expansion came out for destiny a lot of people didn't like it i played through it and i thought it was fine but a lot of people didn't like it and you're you're at the whims of the company but rpgs aren't like that right we we have so much freedom with with rpgs and there's a concept. So there's a, a, a fellow named Nassim Tlaib. He's an economist. He wrote the book, The Black Swan. He's very popular for The Black Swan. Everybody sort of gravitated to him after the 2007, 2008 financial collapse because they thought that that was really a black swan kind of event. I don't remember if he said it was a black swan event. But he, his idea of a black swan event was the idea that, you know, it's, it's an event that occurred that nobody could predict ahead of, nobody was able to really predict ahead of time. But afterwards you could look at it and go, oh yeah, I totally could have seen that coming. Now, he argues that things like the 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 pandemic, the, the the COVID pandemic, were not a black swan because people did. We knew early that it was going on and still we're not able to put all the safety measures in place to help try to prevent that from from spreading as much as it did. So that wasn't really something where it was totally out of left field. But you might argue things like the terrorist attacks in 2020 in September 11th, although a lot of people say, no, they they did it before they attacked. They did it before. Right. There was. So there's lots of things where you look back and you say, oh, I couldn't predict it. I, I can predict it after the fact, right? Predictions are hard, especially about the future, as Yogi Berra would say. So anyway, one of the other things that Nassim Tlaib wrote about was this idea called anti-fragile. He has a book called Anti-Fragile. And anti -fra the concept of anti-fragile is that there are things that are fragile, which means changes in the world, changes in the, that, that discipline will break whatever occurred it was something that is fragile some some people would say that like you know we have economic systems that are fragile again destiny 2 kind of fragile if anything kind of happens to that if it, the company buys it out or they run out of money or anything it's going to fall apart it's not going to survive it is not resilient you can't play destiny 2 if the company decides to shut the servers off that's fragile uh then you have resilient and resilient means it can survive stuff like that and i argue that rpgs are something that it can survive because you have the books even like if wizards of the coast runs with one D, &D in an area that we totally don't like and we think oh god it's there it was the worst thing we ever done we still have our fifth edition books we still have the 5e srd it is resilient right it is it's it's a resilient hobby even that part of it is a resilient hobby we have all of those things we can play there are multiple online tools that have lots of material that allow us to play so that is that is resilient anti-fragile means it actually benefits from chaos that as things break it benefits from chaos and there are some examples that nasim talib brings in i was thinking about like trees that trees actually get stronger as winds blow them in different directions they learn the trees grow in a way that help them survive more than they would otherwise so not only do they not break they actually get stronger from it. I don't know if that's true. I made that part of it. But you can, the metaphor kind of works. I mean, some, there's probably a botanist out there to tell me I'm totally wrong. But there are lots of areas where systems get stronger 
with chaos. I'll give you another example. Netflix. When Netflix, I don't know if they're still doing this, but when Netflix was standing up, they had a thing called Chaos Monkey. And what they did is when they were figuring out how to do a dist distributed system for managing their, their, their whole service, they had services whose job was to run around and shut off machines randomly. So it was like a virus that they wrote themselves that would run around and, and just pull wires from machines and do all kinds of terrible stuff to it. And the reason they wrote that was to make sure that their system was strong enough to handle that if it happened in, in reality. So they built a system that's actually stronger than the chaos that actually exists because they enforce the element of chaos themselves. So this gets to, and, and you know, where, where do we see the anti-fragility? Where can tabletop RPGs not only be resilient to, to change, and particularly in an online world, particularly as we move to more things being played online and more people depending upon digital services to run their games, which I think is where resiliency starts to falter. If we all play with D&D Beyond or we all play with Roll20 and then Roll20 just goes, goes under or stops doing it or, or loses the license or anything, we lose a lot. So how do we build resilience in our play as individual GMs? And is there a way for us to build in anti-fragility as well? And kind of an example that I'll bring up is you can be resilient by not trusting any one digital service. So if you recognize that, yeah, we play with this service now, Albert, I use Albert Rodeo. If Albert Rodeo went away, would I not be able to play DD? No, I'd still. I have other ways that I, I love Albert Rodeo and I hope it sticks around forever. But there are many other virtual tabletops that I could probably switch to if I needed one. Or I could go back to what I did before, which was use, capturing screenshots from maps on my local machine. And that's really resilient because I don't need anybody else's tools to do that so i like owlbear and i'm and then i hope it sticks around and i presume it will but if it went away there's probably other ways i could do it and i could i could also go to things like fantasy grounds and foundry and roll 20 if i wanted another vtt but i'll bet you there'd be other vtt's like that in the same way like dnd beyond if dnd beyond goes away can we still play 5e and the answer is yeah now even in the most extreme circumstance like let's pretend it goes in the worst possible direction and wizards of the coast says a we're changing 1D&D. We're not going to offer 5e, vanilla 5e on D&D Beyond anymore. And we're pulling all of our licenses to all other third-party digital digital services. So you can no longer play 5e D&D on Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds. Or Foundry, it doesn't have it anyway. We're pulling all that down. We're breaking it. Well, the good news is Cobalt Press and... C and Cubicle 7 and Level Up Advanced 5e have entire full versions of 5e that are going to be on those platforms. And that's an example of anti-fragility, that when this whole OGL fiasco occurred, what happened is not only did we manage to deal with it and figure out ways that we were still going to be able to play our games. If you remember my, my videos that I shot back then, it was like, this is all happening, but we can still play. We can still play the game. Right. There's lots of ways. But now it's actually even less fragile because now there's multiple versions of the same system we can play. 5e is stronger right now and it's going to be stronger in a year or two than it has ever been in the past 10 years. Just 5e, not even talking about other RPGs, but just 5e. That's that idea of anti-fragility. Right, that it's an it it's, it 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 grew. It got better from the chaos that occurred. Now we have things in Creative Commons. Now we have multiple full systems that are out there, and multiple full systems that are coming. So when we think about that, like anti fragility and how we are going to, you know, how we can strengthen our game and how the game itself is getting strong, there's there's this is an area that I'm going to think more about, and like what can we do individually as GMs 
to build an anti-fragile approach towards our role-playing games. And I have some thoughts. And one is like not becoming, not only not becoming dependent on multiple, on, on a single digital tool, but trying out and using multiple digital tools, try different things out. Try, if you're familiar with one, play with another, try to work with the other, play different systems, try out different games, you know, shadow dark RPGs coming out. Let's play with that old school essentials. Let's play with that shadow of the weird wizard is coming out. 13th age version two is coming out. Lots of different RPGs that we can try that we can get excited about and not, and we'll get better. We'll get stronger as GMs and our players will have more experience with other systems. We'll get used to things like abstract maps instead of, instead of rigid grid play, all different ways that we'll grow as players and as GMs, because we're going to try that. That's anti-fragile. That's better than the resilience of just being able to know that we can still play RPGs because there's all these RPGs out. Try some of those one pagers, try honey heist, try lasers and feelings, You know, there's all of these like really fast independent RPGs that are like one sheet of paper, right? Try out more Powered by the Apocalypse games. Try Monsters of the Week. Try Thirsty Sword Lesbians. There's all of these different systems that we can try. And we get better. We get stronger as GMs because we're more experienced with more of these things. We're going to talk about that in one of the Patreon questions today. We get, our players get more experience with other systems. They get to try it out. And we know that we have all of these fallbacks. If like, oh, we decide we don't like that. We're going to go to another. That's an idea of how we can be more, we can build sort of an anti-fragile approach towards RPGs. Try different digital tools, play with different digital tools, ask yourself what you would do if that tool went away. If Albert Rodeo went away, where would I go next? What would I use next? And then go try it and see, and maybe you find out you like it better. So those that's really something that I'm thinking a lot about. I'm writing a Sly Flourish article on it now. I wrote the draft and then I'm going to think about it. I'm probably going to send it to a bunch of people, get thoughts about it and try to try to really get my head around this idea. But I find the whole thing fascinating. If you have thoughts about what you, what an anti- fragile RPG system looks like to you, like how you've made your own approach towards this hobby anti-fragile, that it actually gets better the more chaotic it is, please share in the in the comments below. I'd love to I'd love to hear. Obviously, one of the reasons that we're talking about this whole concept of, of anti-fragility in RPGs is because of what happened with the OGL fiasco earlier in the year. It taught us a lot. That was one where we had something that I thought was resilient and then wasn't resilient or we, with the, its resilience suddenly started to disappear and that was a huge threat and I think that's why everybody freaked out so much is we trusted this thing and then that trust faltered and now we're back to trusting it again because now it's in the creative context. And they're probably not going to go after the OGL. So even if you keep using the OGL, you're probably still fine. But but Creative Commons is really strong. And then that got into, so now what we're seeing is Wizards of the Coast recognizing what, what had happened and, and taking ownership of the fact that they made this big mistake. They even did it to their shareholders. Yet yeah, we really dropped the ball. I think they said in shareholders. And so then they're trying to rebuild the trust that they have with the community. And they're trying a lot of different things and they're asking questions. And they have the community summit, which is coming up in April. I think it's April, April 7th to the 9th, in-person and digital. I was one of the invitees to the digital version. My friend Teos was one of the ones that was invited to the in-person. So we're going to get him from two different sides and lots of different people that were invited for, for all kinds of different things. And so they're trying stuff, right? And they said they have this community post where they talk about how they're, they're trying things. And, and we're seeing instead of them saying like, these are things we're going to do, they're actually doing things. And an example, which I said, again, is a, I have a conflict of interest here because we were the first ones to do it, is they invited a third party producer of, of 5e material onto their Wizards of the Coast D&D Beyond Twitch stream to spend an hour talking about our kick, right? That was a big deal. That's a community outreaching. Obviously, I'm very happy with that because it was mine. I think it's, I will, I, I hope that they keep that up and I hope they do that with other 
producers. I hope they do that with other people that are producing five eBooks. I presume they will. I don't think we're going to be the only one. I think it went pretty well. So, you know, I want to see them bring other 5e publishers. Yeah. Thank you. Brian says not third party 5e. Yes. I have to wire that into my head. 5e publishing, not third party publishing. We're all 5e publishers now, including Wizards of the Coast. We're all publishing towards 5e if we're, if we're publishing towards 5e. So I hope they continue to do that. And obviously them shining a spotlight onto more 5e publishers other than just Wizards of the Coast, I think is a really a good benefit to the community. It shows you other people. It shows the breadth of this whole or this whole this whole hobby. That is a fantastic thing to do. Being since I'm going to be going to this community summit, and I don't know how like what our opportunities for interaction are going to be, and and maybe zero. It may be that it's one way where we're just hearing them talk about, it, or maybe we're going to hear the input. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I want to have some things in hand about like if they if somebody asked me and I actually had this on hand when we were doing the D&D Beyond thing, I thought if they say, what can we do? What can Wizards of the Coast do to help the the, 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 the RPG publishing, the, the, the non watsy RPG publishing community? What could they do? And I've narrowed it down to kind of two things. And this gets back into the anti-fragility. It also gets in things I think Wizards is really in the best position to do that no one else is. And then there's like, what does Wizards do that actually matters to the larger community? And what do they do that really doesn't? And 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 so number one, I'm gonna I'm gonna save the one that I think is no no argument for for last. But the for the the first thing I think they can do is given the new reliance on digital tools, I would really like to see them better support other 5e publishing tool digital tools that are out there other than just D&D Beyond. I wanted them to commit to continuing to support Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds with both current 5e products and 1D&D products. I want to see them put their material out in there and commit to continuing to support those platforms. I want to see them commit to supporting Foundry. Foundry is a great big third-party publishing platform, a great big VTT. Support, support Foundry with both 5e material and 1D&D material. Cobalt Press did. Cobalt Press said Foundry is going to be our primary platform. I don't think it's going to be their only platform. So I would like to see them do that. I would also like to see them support Demiplane, right? I haven't really used Demiplane. I don't know how it works, but I, I, you know, I know it's there and I know that they are moving towards supporting 5e as well. Support another character builder. I think I would like to see them and I think it was in their benefit. Some people are like, oh yeah, we had this chat in, in the Slyflare's Discord server. And it's like, why would they do that? Then they're helping everybody else. But I'm not saying do it for free, right? They make money. I think, I bet you, Wizards made a mint off of the material that they put over on Roll20. Roll20, I know, I think it's like the number of people playing there doubled during the pandemic. It went, it was double. And you know that they went and bought a bunch of D&D stuff on there because it's the, the half of the platform, half of the games that are playing on there are, are fifth edition D&D. So you know they made a lot of money from that. So this isn't saying you can't make money. This is, go ahead and make money with them, but support all these different platforms so that we don't have to just pick one. What I worry about is, of course, they're going to focus everything around D&D Beyond and their new VTT and they're going to cut everybody else out. And I think what, the way I, the, the metaphor I use for this that I used on, on that I used on when we were talking about on the Slyflare's Patreon server was they can either work on making, on, work on cutting a bigger piece of the pie, right? Like we're going to try to take more money out of the pie that's here or make a bigger pie. And I want them to focus on making a bigger pie, bring more people in, support more tools, grow the pie. And then even if your piece is the same percentage, that is still 
quantitatively bigger than it was. So, and I, and I think they can do both, right? I think, I think that this is in their interests. And I think Kyle, and when, when, when Kyle, Kyle Brinks had done his interviews, he mentioned like, he said himself, I want to make sure, I don't want to be like anti-competitive. I want to support these things so that we can be competitive and, and our products are what drive people to buy it. Not just that we own this one particular segment of the market. That's great for Kyle. I hope the rest of the company feels that way. And one way they could do it that I think is a, a, a clear thing they could do today is we commit to continuing our support to Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. We commit to supporting Foundry and we commit to support Demiplane. Four, four things that they could do that show they're headed in that direction. That would be really, that would be really cool. The other one, which I think is not very controversial, and I think they want to do it, and I think they're in the best position to do it, is be the best onboarding platform to the RPG hobby that they can be. And that's one where like nobody else is putting a movie out in theaters with their brand on it. There isn't going to be a Cobalt Press Black Flag movie being shown at my local cinema. But there is a D&D movie that's coming out in a couple weeks. So more of that is great. More of trying to get ahead of things like Stranger Things so that you can make sure that D&D is shown in a really positive light. I, I would expect that Wizards of the Coast had nothing to do with D&D showing up in Stranger Things and then benefited from it after the fact. How do you get ahead of that? How do you get it? This is the, I want, I want the baloney meat. I want the, the D&D branded baloney right and and i want them to push that like get that brand everywhere pushing the dnd brand i am good with i'm good with the focus on the brand and bringing the brand out and making little tchotchkes and doodads and putting out toys and putting all that stuff out there to get people excited about dnd i was the, the dream i had was that you would go to the movie theater and you'd watch Den of Thieves, you'd watch the movie and you'd laugh with everybody else and you'd like it. And as you walk out, the guy, a dude would hand you a pamphlet, an eight page pamphlet of a nice staple bound thing that is a playable version of D&D. And here's a 20 sided die for you. Here's your pamphlet and your 20 sided die. Go home, play some D&D with your friends on an eight page little thing. I don't know how to do it, but there's got to be a way to do it. Get, you know, uh, Sean, I was talking about this with some friends of mine, Sean Merwin and some others, Scott, Scott Gray and Teos and Sean and I and Rich Lescaflair and a bunch of others. And we're talking about this and it was like, make a new basic edition, right? Make a basic edition of D&D. Now I kind of argue, well, Dragon of Stormwreck Isle is about as close to a basic edition as you're going to get. And it's really good. But maybe there's a simpler one that you can get that's so cheap to make it's free that it's worth you just, you know, it's a little bit of marketing. It's a tiny little bit of marketing expense, but you could print thousands of these for, you know, not a lot of money and then paper the world with them so that we have D little pamphlets of D&D &D everywhere would be awesome so build out that's the building of the pie be the best onboarding company that you can be and make that pie bigger and get this brand and get the game and get the joy of the game out support it when when, when you see these things like stranger things or critical role or other groups that suddenly get to be really popular and you didn't have anything to do with it do everything you can to support them give them all the support they need and i think they've been doing this i don't i don't this think this is something they haven't been working on i'm sure they reached out to the producers of netflix and hey how can we help but do everything you can to be the best on ramp because that helps everybody else then what you have is you have essentially a funnel where a bunch of people come in maybe they try 
it once. They don't like it, but some of them stay. They stay. They go. They go to D&D Beyond and they play and they enjoy it. And then they go and say, I want more. And then they hit the third party market and they go, I like this, but I kind of want the gritty form. Maybe I'll go play Old School Essentials or maybe I'll go play Shadow Dark or maybe I like this, but I'm just having a hard time really getting my hands around prep. So they go by Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Maybe they say, I like this, but I want something that's really like, you know, grim and bloody and gory and filled with you know nasty stuff and they go to shadow of the demon lord or maybe they say i want that really high super heroic fantasy and they go to 13th age that brings everybody back to all of the rest of the rpg market that's out there and all the rest of the rpg publishers that are out there it gets people excited about that and i think that's something that wizards of the coast can do that nobody else can do and i would like to see them do that so those are the kind of the two big things and one of them, I don't think they'd argue with me at all. I think they're like, yeah, 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 we got that one. We, we, know, we don't need Mike Shea to tell us to try to make D&D a big brand and try to bring people on. I get it. But I, that, that's what I want from them. That's where I really want them to be focusing their activity. What's interesting about that topic is what doesn't... And I, I'd argue that most of the books that Wizards of the Coast publishes in that area kind of don't matter. Now, some of them do. I would say Xanathar's does. I would say Tasha's does. I would say Monsters of the Multiverse does. Obviously, the core books do. The starter sets are the big one. If, 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 if Mike Shea was in charge for a day, I would, be, I would have a team. I would have like a good percentage of the team's energy spent on constantly thinking about what the next approach is to put out a very inexpensive product that you can stick in every big box retail store in the world that you can sell and get people to play. I would put so much energy towards the starter set because that's what's really bringing people in there. And I think a lot of time the starter set's sort of like a throwaway idea, right? I, I hear that like, you know, Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, that like Target came to, to Wizards and said, we like the starter set, we want another. And then like Chris Perkins wrote in a weekend, right? And it's great. And I like uh, Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, I think it's fantastic, but maybe you want to spend a little bit more energy on that. The core books I think matter a lot. But the funny thing is there are other now core books too. So that's less critical. The core books I think are less critical. I am less worried about what they do with 1D&D because I know that I also have three other versions that I can play, including their other one. So four, four or more, right? I already know that there's, there, there's, there's other ways that I can go. And also the thing about the core books is they're expensive, right? It's like 80 to $120. So that's not the same. You're not gonna get nearly as many people. There's so many more starter sets out there than there probably are sets of the core books. I'm making that statistic up, but I bet you, I bet you, bet you could be true. So what's interesting is the published adventures, the published source books for things, even like my beloved Eberron source book. That's great that they did that. And I'm sure it's very popular. It's less critical to the whole RPG industry that that exists than it is like the core books of the starter set, right? Because it, it isn't the on-ramp. The, the, the Eberron isn't the on-ramp to DD. Eberron is a great book that Wizards of the Coast can publish. And so can many other people can publish books that are just like it and do. Campaign source books, there are lots of those. That's something that isn't something that only Wizards can do. They, they're the only ones that can do an Eberron one. They're the only ones that can do Planescape. Please, please make Planescape a, bo a book and not a box set. That would be awesome. There are many different, they're, they're, their own IP are the only things that they can write for and that they can put a big book out for. Which is always interesting because then they write out books for things like Wild Beyond the Witchlight that really isn't a new IP for them. There isn't anything in Witchlight that was really native to them that you probably couldn't have written for your own, you know, for your own, for, or any other fifth edition publisher could have probably written and has. A book of Ebon Tides is similar. So there's, to me, like it's less critical of these other books. And, and that means we don't have to worry too much. When they come out and they're not, they're not exactly what we wanted, that's okay. 
So what it means is like I, I if we look at something like Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons, some people liked it. I liked it. I thought it was very good. Some people didn't like it. They're like, ah, I didn't really like the direction. It's okay. Because when Wizards does it, doesn't mean it as official. And that any other group that ever puts out another book about dragons is not the thing because that they broke the game. It doesn't matter. Those books, they're great. And we want them the same way we want good books from any publisher. But they don't, when I say they don't matter, they don't change the RPG hobby. They don't change 5e because you can use it or not, right? They're just a book. They're, it's okay. If you don't like it, it's okay. If you didn't like Strixhaven, it's okay. If you don't like the fact that they're doing a bunch of magic settings in DD, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the game overall. It doesn't affect the other 5th edition products that are coming out. It doesn't stop other 5th edition products from coming out. It doesn't get in the way. So we really, like the only things that are like a risk, and the only thing where I say like Xanathars and Tasha's and Monsters of the Multiverse, probably Monsters of the Multiverse isn't that, isn't, 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 it's a great book. It's good. I like it. I, I like it more than I did. Is it critical? Not really, because there are so many monster books. Right, I actually don't use it very often. I'm using now. I'm using more stuff from Cobra Press because they're under the OGL, and that means I can stick them in my big database. And so I have my big monster database that I'm using. And you know, so there's there's but but like Tasha's and Xanathar's. The thing that that did is it did give a lot of new subclasses and a lot of new options and a lot of new features to keep the 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 core Wizards of the Coast version of D and D going strong. And that in, meant that more people continue to keep playing it, which meant then they would come into the rest of the RPG hobby as well. So I think that it, there, those books helped. I think like when it comes to the books that really matter for Wizards of the Coast to be publishing that are helping GMs and are helping the, 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 the larger RPG hobby, it's number one by like 50% are starter sets, right? Bring out those starter sets. Number two core books, having a good solid set of core books. And those would be like mass market box set. You can go buy them at Target kind of things. But those are expensive. But those that matters too. The core of the game does matter a lot. And then the supplementary books that expand the mechanics of the game, which we really don't want a lot of, right? If they put out too many, they'll break it. And, and we've seen that happen. But a few years after is the new books that are kind of helping with the quality of life and offering options that are keeping the game fresh for people who are generally sticking to just the core D&D books. But also at that point is when more people who are really into the hobby are going to try more other, you know, more fifth edition material or more RPG material from other publishers as well. So I think that that matters. And I think what it means is we can care a little bit less about the other books. And in the sense, not, not, not in the sense that like, I don't care that they're making them, but if, if they're great, like Van Richten's guide, Van Richten's guide is a fabulous book. I love Van Richten's guide. I've talked about it on the show. It is a wonderful book. It was my favorite, my favorite fifth edition book of, of that year. I think it was a couple of years ago it came out and I loved it. Did it, did it change the RPG hobby? Not really. Right. Not, not, not really. There are other books that also came out that I also really love. But it's a great book. And, and for, for Wizards of the Coast to be focusing on putting out really great books is great. But then if they put out a book that's disappointing, like Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, right? I was not enamored with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I've talked about this before. Planescape, or I'm sorry, Spelljammer. I'm not enamored with Spelljammer as a big box set that cost 80 bucks. Did it break the game? No. And I think, I think the only thing that it did that was, was really damaging is that we're not likely to see another Spelljammer book come out. In, in the near future. It, it probably is going to be years before we'd see another Spelljammer book come out. 
And it, it's a shame because we could have had a Spelljammer book that was a campaign book, that a campaign guide that offered lots of options for the GM to build out big Spelljammer campaigns. And what we got was really rather thin compared, you know, for all of the energy that people have been talking about for Spelljammer, that was rather thin. Now, Light of Zaraxxus, I've talked about the adventure that's in there. I'm running it. I ran it last night and I love it. It's a very good adventure. That could have been a digital adventure. I'm running it digitally. And I would have much rather have a great big Eberron-sized book for Spelljammer. And I would really love to see a great big Eberron-sized book and exactly in the same style, the same format, the same approach, the same design ideas that for the Eberron book, I would love to see for a Planescape book. But I fear what I'm going to get is another box, another 192 pages wrapped up in like 14 sheets of big, thick cardboard that cost me 80 bucks. And that's going to make me sad. So I hope I don't see that. Does it ruin the game? No. Does it hurt the RPG industry? No. Because I also have Path of the Plane Breaker, right? I have other groups that have made, I'm working on like a multi-planar city. So that idea, the ideas of Planescape that we liked, we can omit what we don't and take what we do and put them in our own books and put those out in the way we like. And other fifth edition publishers can do the same. So a product like that doesn't really damage the industry. A bad starter set would damage the industry. Killing first level characters with challenge rating three monsters for players that have never played before and GMs that have never run before, that hurts the industry. I argue that like the lethal battles that are in the beginning of Dragon of Ice Spire Peak and Dragon of and, and uh, Lost Mine of Fendelver, those probably hurt the whole industry because players would play, not know what they're doing, kill their characters, and everyone's like, this game sucks, and they leave. And you lost them right off the bat because you thought it'd be fun to hurt first level characters or because you didn't test it enough for whatever reason. I, I see it. I see it happen, right? Now, Dragon of Stormwreck Isle doesn't have that. Dragon of Stormwreck Isle has like a low threshold where you can't die and that's great because like you can get started you're just learning kill them kill them later when they're 14th level kill them all the time don't kill them at first level so that's what i'm that's my whole kind of rant in this i'll probably talk about this more i'm sure one thing that i thought is very interesting wizards of the coast has a a, a thing that they put up on dina beyond called before the storm before the storm is a starter adventure choose your own adventure only has dice rolling in it which is really pretty neat that is a prelude, a, pre, a precursor and a prelude to Dragon of Stormwreck Isle. So you can send this URL. Anybody who's like, I'm interested in D&D, there's a lot of things you can send them. One thing you can send them is this. I say, well, if you just want to see what it's like, just like how the gameplay works and how the narrative works and a little bit about the mechanics, you can play this little thing. It's about 10 minutes long and it's a fun little adventure. You pick different classes. You pick... Um, uh, you go through the, your little adventure. It's actually replayable. I haven't replayed it. And it's got dice rolling in it. It's really cool. You'll find a note. It's called Before the Storm. And I'll link to that in the show notes below. And that's what I mean about being an on-ramp. This is an on-ramp. They should be promoting the hell out of this. This should be There should be QR codes papering the world. When you click on it, you go to this, you learn how to play D&D, &D, and then it tells you where to go from here. This is what I think wizards can do to really bring more people to the hobby, which I think helps the whole RPG hobby overall. And I think wizards is really the only place to do it. Let's talk about some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon site, we have a monthly Q&A. You can ask any RPG-related question there. I answer all of them on the Patreon, and then some of them I bring here to the show. Some of them even become articles or other videos. And we will start with Knights of the Roleplay Podcast says, One of the main themes of my upcoming homebrew campaign is to overthrow the rule of the dragonborn species on an island continent. The dragonborn often get away with crimes against members of many non-dragonborn species on the island. I'm concerned this may come
come across as racist, even though it's not a case of one species subjugating another. It's one species ruling with a heavy hand over many other species, and there is no slavery of any kind. Do you think what I'm, I'm walking a dangerous line regarding racism? Great question. There's a lot of facets in this that I think are worth are worth covering. And there is the question of like, are you, are you, it's not, I mean, so racism is one aspect and bioessentialism is sort of, you know, tied into that. The, the concept of bioessentialism, from what I understand, I am not an expert in this, so you're getting a non-expert's opinion on it. But the idea of bioessentialism is essentially you're saying all halflings are a bunch of little thieves, right? They're mischievous thieves. All goblins are black-hearted little cave dwellers. All orcs are brutish, savage, you know, murderers. And you think like, what if you were to say like all humans are that way? All humans are savage cave dwelling murders. You'd be like, why humans? No, they could be anything. All of the species in your game can be just as varied as humans can be. And that's something that's worth considering. You don't, you, in our, in, typically in our fantasy RPGs, we never pigeonhole humans as being just one thing. We never say all humans are mischievous little thieves or all humans are delicate, beautiful, light-skinned forest dwellers who just sing songs all day. No, you're like, no, humans are farmers. Humans are kings. Humans are bandits. Humans are paladins. Humans are everything. Well, guess what? So are dragonborn. So are dwarves. So are elves, right? All of these different species, they don't have to be pigeonholed into being one thing. And I think when we do, when we take a species, like dwarves are all down in the earth, and they are all really stubborn and they all love to drink and they all just mine all day. That's bioessentialism because you're saying, why can't a bunch, why can't there be an overland village of dwarves that just operate like themselves? Why are they different? So, so there's that one, one aspect of this though is, okay, well, what's the lazy trick, right? What's the lazy trick with this? And the lazy trick is instead of saying the dragonborn are, pushing against crimes against members of non-dragonborn why is this group of dragonborn doing it why is this one group doing it are they dragonborn of tiamat right the easy one is to say they are followers of tiamat and under tiamat they bring the scourge down upon the the, the groups that they torment and guess what there are other dragonborn of bahamut and maybe if you're in a dark world the tiamat dragonborn killed all the bahamut dragonborn and now only the, the, the bahamut dragonborn are just legends and they are old tombs bahamut you know dragonborn of bahamut are in these old tombs and people remember them oh yeah no there were these other dragonborn of bahamut and they were really good but they got killed but maybe you can go to their tombs and talk to their ghosts and get their weapons and go fight the dragonborn of Tiamat. It's so much easier to say they are X of Y. They are dwarves of the Lonely Mountain, right? And so they do operate. But then there's also the dwarves of whatever. And those dwarves are artisans, right? They live above ground and they are they they have artisans. There's then these other dwarves that do this other thing. So they make the races, make the species as varied as you think about humans. And the other thing is, this isn't just about like fighting racism, which it does, right? This, this helps open our minds to the fact that it gets rid of bioessentialism, which has been used as a tool for racism for ever. And it also makes the game better. The game is more interesting when you do this. You have new factions, you have history, you have lore, you have things that the characters can learn and it's cool stuff. And the model that I bring up all the time with this is Eberron. You look at how Eberron treats this stuff. Goblins were an empire that was more powerful than the current empires that exist on the land. The orcs were druids who helped fight away the, 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 the Daleker and kept them from invading the world. 
all of the races, including the quote unquote monstrous races, have a history that shows why they're not just all a bunch of monsters, that they have these histories of what they've done. But the other one is you can basically take any species and you can break it out and say there are different factions of these species. You could also have a faction that is multi-species where lots of lots of different species are that way. I've been doing this in my, my Midgard games. Then instead of saying, oh, it's all of these dwarves that live. First of all, I have many different types of dwarves. They've run, I think they've run into a whole bunch of different dwarves in my, in my Empire of the Ghouls game. And the dwarves of the cantons are different from each other. The black cantons are different than the other cantons. And then the dwarves that they met over the north are very different than the other ones. The dwarves of the Wolfheim are very different from the dwarves of the cantons. And they're learning that. Plus the dwarves that are actually at Jost, who are city-dwelling dwarves, they're different and they're like trying to unite. There are just as varied as everybody else. So the, to me, should you be worried about being racist? No, but you know, one way to make it more interesting is to have different factions of Dragonborn. And if you're worried about it, have some good Dragonborn. Have some Dragonborn that are the antithesis of the bad Dragonborn. So it's not just, so it's not just, it's, it's not just all Dragonborn are, are these, these, these Scourge. It's just more interesting. And also, guess what? That's the way it's been in D&D since it first came out. That you have seen factions, you have seen different species, you have seen allies that are of all different races. That's been in adventures as far back as you can go. And all the people are like, oh, I just want orcs to be bad people. They weren't all bad people even in the first adventures that came out for D&D. That isn't the legacy. So you don't, you don't have to do that, right? And, and you don't have to do it here. And the easy trick is who do they follow? Why are they following that? Why? Why? Maybe it's an uh, an emperor. Maybe they all work for an evil empire. Maybe they work for a warlord. Maybe it's a god that they worship. Maybe it's you know, something else. But is there a reason that they're doing what they're doing? That isn't just because they're dragonborn, or they're drow, or they're duergar, or they're darrow. Why do they have these different realms of what they do? That is what I would do. So a very important question. Thank you for asking it. I hope I hope that helps. I hope that helps everybody that, that's listening to it because it's a it's a real important one. And it's something I don't talk a lot about very often. Kurt T says, I want more low fantasy survival horror style game than straight 5e, but I have a ton of great 5e supplements of full of monster spells, magic items, NPCs, etc. that I really like. And players who only know 5e. When I look at other systems, I don't find any that have supplemental material that of the same breadth and coolness. Would you recommend a house ruling 5e to fit a different style, taking inspiration from things like 5e hardcore mode and 5 torches deep, or B, modify the monsters and other material to fit different systems mechanics? I would probably go with the latter. I feel like 5e, since, well, really, 3rd edition, 4th edition, and 5th edition of D&D is a different style of fantasy RPG than OD&D and 1st edition and 2nd edition. And I was talking about this with my wife today, and it's like really about halfway through 2nd edition is when the changes started to occur. And I would say that it started to occur when the complete books started coming out. The complete fighter, the complete ranger, and those the brown, leathery skinned, soft cover books that added lots of character options is when it moved from being sort of a grim fantasy, yeah, I wouldn't say survival horror exactly, but like low low power fantasy to high power fantasy is when it made that shift and third edition was definitely more high power fantasy fourth edition absolutely super heroic fantasy in fourth edition fifth edition i would say also fits that maybe at first level you could argue it doesn't but then the game quickly shifts about the time you hit third level when you get a subclass now you're really into heroic fantasy where the characters are very empowered to do lots of different things they have many tools at their disposal they don't have to worry about the mundane things like food and light and that's when you talk about survival horror, a lot of times what you're talking about is food and light. So I would probably find a system 
that suits the style of play that you want and try it out with your players. There's a lot of them. Like Old School Essentials is probably the biggest, the biggest of them. Really, really cool looking game. I really like it a lot. Uh, uh, we see Shadow Dark RPG. Shadow Dark, the RPG, crossed a million dollars on their Kickstarter. And there's a sample that you could play right away. So if you want to try that, that definitely hits that survival horror. But it also is very 5e. It uses a lot of 5e style mechanics in it, which means it's kind of easier for 5e players to pick it up and run with it. So that might be a good one to try out. And it definitely hits that food and food and, and, and torches really matter. You can't 5e hardcore mode is a wrapper to 5e that turns it into more of a survival horror game. It's a big wrapper, but you can buy it for cheap and you can send it to your players and say, hey, we're going to try this variant for it. Five Torches Deep is, of course, its own system, but still has 5e mechanics in it. So you can try that. Now... Monsters and other material, monsters, magic items, settings, adventures, and everything like that, they're pretty easy to change. They're pretty easy to modify so that you can so you can rescope them for things like old school essentials or these other these other systems. You can you can take all the ideas. It's just the mechanics you strip away. But all of the mechanics of it, you can definitely bring to just about any RPG that fits that same style. Monsters are very easy to build or reskin in any system that you're playing. The settings and adventures are often very easy to build and reskin. If the theme of the adventure, though, is a high heroic fantasy adventure, then an old school game might not be it. I don't think I would take Tyranny of Dragons, the Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat adventures. I don't think I would take those and use an old school kind of survival horror game because the adventures theme isn't that way. Same with Wild Beyond the Witchlight. You wouldn't do it there. Maybe you would do it with something like Rime of the Frostmaiden, but I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd even do it with Descent into Avernus. So if you're looking at adventures, the theme of the adventure is what's going to tell you whether you want to do more heroic fantasy or more survival fantasy. And then there's lots and lots of survival fantasy adventures that are not written for 5e that you could try and run so i would probably try a system and the other question i would always ask you is are your players on board with this do they want to do this or do they like their chewy characters now you could do like what my group my group is talking about trying shadow dark we're probably not going to say like okay we're done with dnd we're playing shadow dark forever but we're like hey let's play a few sessions of shadow dark and see what it's like so i think we're gonna we're gonna try that out I would do that. Try it out. See what your players think and see what see what they like. So Kirk, I hope that hope that answers your question. Carl A says, through my own fault, clever choices by the players and just story beats, the adventure party has turned into an unstoppable army. We have six players, animals from a bag of tricks, a gray render they rescued gray render. They rescued and befriended, a ghost wizard they can summon for support, a unicorn mount, arcanist companions, and so on. Needless to say, it's a hard challenge. It's hard to challenge this party. They made fun, wise decisions to put this this group together and are having fun so i don't want to just eliminate the npcs for the sake of game balance i find i have to use large numbers of monsters to challenge them but that grinds the battles down immensely just too many turns in the initiative how can i challenge them without slowing down combat so much any tips for speeding up such large combat tip for solo monsters that can face such a large party i put this one in here as a warning to others carl's situation is going to be very hard to deal with and the best way to deal with a situation like this is not get in it in the first place. And there's there, there's power creep where you give a lot of magic items. Oh, I gave them a plus three shield and now their armor class is 22 and that really is hard. But that doesn't really slow the game down. But when you give them anything that increases the number of actions or worse, the number of turns that an individual player can take, the whole game is going to grind down a lot. And Carl is in the middle of that right now. This is why if you want to give NPCs to your characters, make them like spiritual 
NPCs that in that are inside magic items or talking skulls that they carry with them or spirits that follow them around but can interact. Turn-based NPCs, NPCs that take a turn is just really hard to deal with. And when you have a lot of them, animals in a bag of tricks, gray renders, you know, unicorns, ghost wizards. Oh my God. It's just going to get worse and worse. And you know, you really, there's just not a great way to deal with it. I would probably, if I were in this situation, I would probably talk to the players and say, we need to talk about all of the companions that we have. And at the very least, you can only have one companion per character. And a little way to make that faster is that companion only acts immediately after your turn. So you take your turn, your companion takes a turn and then beg them, please keep in mind the time that it takes. Don't do a lot of crazy tactical stuff with your creature. Just simple. Let's look. Can you simplify the, the thing? The gray render cut away all of its special abilities and just focus it on the, whatever the one thing you want the gray render to do. Anything that you can do that can really help reduce that would be great. And if you can get the players to agree to maybe not use them all in one battle, that would be nice too. There's there's no great way to keep the challenge high. You can definitely keep the challenge high, but the battle's going to be really long. And that's lots, you know, for every action that are on the character side, you need at least one or more actions on the monster side, which is why solo monsters are going to get destroyed. Action economy is just totally out of balance. It sounds like you've got almost like one creature per character so they're doing 12 if you have six players you have 12 actions 12 turns that are going on there's no great way to do it it's really really hard the only thing i can recommend is if you can get the players to agree to not use some of it that would be outstanding or say can you the unicorn can the unicorn be an npc that isn't really acting in the game or your arcanist companions maybe they just offer you advantage on attack sometimes try to strip it down as much as you can and then you can start to, to bring the challenge on there but there's just not a great way tips for solo monsters a solo monster ain't going to do it because it's solo no solo monster has enough stuff to be able to handle that many turns so it's going to need friends and if it has friends now you have a long battle i mean that's this is why so i i put this in here not because i have great advice for how to deal with this but because i want us all to look at carl's situation and internalize the fact that adding more creatures i had it with a, a, a one of my players in my in my game cast summon woodland beings and i like I, I i paused for a minute i said pause for a minute can you use the one from tasha's and he said well the tasha stuff i thought wasn't allowed in our game i said that one is that one's allowed you can summon that thing because it's only one monster it's not seven but as soon as a player has nine turns, like what were they thinking when a player would have nine turns by summoning eight wolves? Oh, miserable. So that's my warning for Kyle. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, you will want to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You will get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox as, as well as a free Adventure Generator PDF. You can support me on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, the Patreon Q&A, the Sly Flourish Discord server, and a lot of other material. We have both a hero and a veteran tier for you to join in. And you can also support me by picking up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. Links to all of that are down in the show notes below. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.